It's February 28, 1953, and a Cambridge University grad student named Francis Crick bursts into the Eagle Pub, a well-worn hangout nestled amid the colleges of Cambridge University. We have found the secret of life, he proclaims to the surprised patrons of the pub. <coughs> Crick was exaggerating, but not by much. He and his colleague, the 24-year-old American student James Watson, had indeed found one of the secrets of life. Earlier that day, in their lab, they had finished building a tin and wire model of what they believed to be the structure of a molecule called deoxyribose nucleic acid. You probably know it by its acronym, DNA. The model they built in their lab showed that DNA was shaped like a twisted ladder or spiral staircase. The rungs were made up of combinations of four molecules that carried the code for all of our genes. They dubbed it the double helix. James Watson and Francis Crick published their findings in the journal Nature, which included a drawing of the double helix. The double helix was arguably the most important biological discovery of the 20th century, and it was a major step on our quest to cure some of the most complex human diseases. It was the birth of the field of genomics. I'm Walter Isaacson, and you're listening to Trailblazers, an original podcast from Dell Technologies. I should like to tell you that I have seen some of the experiments shown in this film. Scientific achievements undreamed of a few decades past. Using the different instruments and tests at our command. Particularly promising are the advances being made in the biological sciences. Let us look into the laboratory. Sampling, incubating, plating, and then more incubating. James Watson was a biologist. Francis Crick's background was in physics. Prior to World War II, a collaboration between these two disparate disciplines would have been unlikely, but the war had brought about a fundamental shift in thinking among biologists that made them much more open to working with physicists. After all, physicists had harnessed the power of the atom so maybe they could help solve the puzzle of DNA. There's this turn in biology after World War II to this idea that life should and could be understood uh, on a molecular level. Hallam Stevens is the author of Biotechnology and Society, an introduction. Biologists begin to imagine DNA as some kind of code, just like a computer code, some kind of software. Right, so that DNA is the kind of the software that runs the kind of hardware of the, of the body, like the program that runs our computers. It's like the operating system. I mean, all of these kinds of metaphors begin to emerge and you know, play a very, very powerful role in the way people begin to think about what DNA is and also what, what life is. The marriage between biology and technology 
was consummated in the early 1970s with the work of two American biochemists named Stanley Cohen and Herbert Boyer. Cohen and Boyer successfully cut DNA from two different organisms and pasted them together to form a single molecule. They could then introduce this new recombined DNA back into an organism where it would replicate. A genome is the sum total of an organism's DNA. So if you think of the genome as a line of text, scientists can now read the text, copy it, and even do some basic editing. They called their discovery recombinant DNA. They imagined a whole range of different uses. Uh, the main one is that they realized that they could potentially produce human proteins from it. For example, humans produce insulin uh, naturally. Now what, you, what Boyer and Cohen realized that they could do was, in fact, to take the gene for human insulin, put it inside a bacteria, uh, and then allow the bacteria to produce human insulin. It actually came from a human gene, but it was produced uh, inside uh, a bacteria and therefore could then be used as a kind of drug, right? It could be used as a treatment, for example, for diabetics. Today, it is hard to imagine medicine without recombinant DNA. It's widely used to develop vaccines, therapeutic agents, and diagnostic tools. But with the discovery of recombinant DNA, scientists had for the first time entered the murky world of genetic engineering. Uh, I think that what it did was showed people what was possible and kind of inspired this whole idea that we can take control of our genes, take control of life on a molecular level. This idea has existed in the imagination uh, for quite a long time, but this moment in 1972 really basically creates the field of what we would now call biotech or biotechnology. The potential benefits of recombinant DNA technology were obvious, but so too were some of the very serious risks. What if it enabled them to produce dangerous toxins or transform them into cancer-causing agents. These possibilities were so worrying that in 1974, scientists involved in recombinant DNA research agreed to pause their work until some guidelines could be established. Six months later, 140 of the world's top biotech researchers met at the Asilomar Conference Center in Northern California to talk about how recombinant DNA research should proceed. This was one of the most important scientific conferences where the who's who of the biotechnology world kind of got together to try to set the ground rules as this new technology came online. But it's controversial. That's Glenn Cohen. He's a professor at the Harvard Law School, and an expert on health law and bioethics. There's people who view it as one of the most successful kind of engagements of uh, public policy in science and self-regulation for science. And other views it as a kind of a situation where only uh, the elites were there and there wasn't true representation and certainly not representation of the public. So what it generated was a, an internal sort of agreement as to what to do, not to do, as opposed to external-facing public regulation. 
The scientists at the conference established rules on how and where recombinant DNA research could take place. Cloning and experimenting with dangerous pathogens were declared off-limits. As for how the rules would be enforced, the scientists were eager to avoid the heavy hand of government regulation, so they agreed to essentially regulate themselves. Only labs that conform to the Asilomar rules on safety would be eligible for funding from the National Institutes of Health, satisfied that they now had appropriate guidelines in place, scientists continued to push the frontiers of genetic engineering. And they would soon receive a critical boost from a project that began almost by accident at another science conference in December 1984. I was a biochemist. I had no idea what genetics was, but I got invited to a meeting in Alta, Utah, uh, and it was only 19 people sponsored by the Department of Energy, the U.S. Department of Energy. This is Rick Myers. Today, he's the president of the Hudson Alpha Institute for Biotechnology in Huntsville, Alabama. In 1984, he was a postdoc fellow in biochemistry at Harvard. Now, you might be wondering what the Department of Energy is doing in a story about genetic research. The answer is that the DOE is in charge of America's nuclear arsenal, and scientists there wanted to learn more about how radiation from an atom bomb might affect the genetic profile of people exposed to it. America detonated the first atom bombs over Hiroshima and Nagasaki in 1945. Now, nearly 40 years later, the DOE wanted to go back and see if they could find any mutations. It wouldn't be easy. Our cells are very good at copying each other exactly. Mutations are rare and hard to find. We were at this small meeting, and the senior scientists who were discussing how they might measure this said, you know, the mutation rate is probably so low, we'd probably have to sequence the whole human genome in order to figure this out. And everybody laughed because this was 1984. Nobody had any idea about sequencing the human genome. And out of that casual remark was born the largest, most ambitious, most expensive, and arguably the most important multinational science collaboration ever undertaken, the Human Genome Project. The goal was to find all the estimated 25,000 human genes and sequence them by determining the exact order of the 3 billion DNA base pairs that make up the human genome. If successful, it would be like having all the pages of a manual needed to make the human body. But to do it using the technology that existed at the time would be an enormous challenge. It was terrible. It would have taken us 200 years to do it with the technologies that we had then, or maybe even more. I'm not even sure we could have gotten there. And yet, the goal, the reason for doing it uh, was so, so important, not just for this particular project, but for everything we've done in, in now in medicine and, and uh, basic biology of humans, other organisms, even agriculture. And what happened along the way is the techniques got better and better. The Human Genome Project was officially launched in October 1990. 
And the first decision the scientists made was possibly their most important. In academics, data is usually only released after a study is complete. But the scientists involved in the Human Genome Project decided that all the data it generated would be free and immediately available for everyone to use as soon as it was gathered. Their philosophy was similar to open-source software developers who publish their code online so other programmers can freely build upon their work. In biology, it was, it was completely unheard of, but we had a series of three meetings in Bermuda and developed what we called the Bermuda Principles, which was the free and rapid release of data for everyone to use. And it's stuck. I mean, this is the way most genomic data are, are generated. You can't sit on it. You get it, you, you release it, you know, rapidly. This was a huge paradigm shift in the scientific community. The goal of this change to research publishing conventions was to reduce the amount of time it would take to sequence the human genome. But for at least one person involved on the Human Genome Project, things weren't moving fast enough. Craig Venter was a biochemist at the National Institutes of Health. But he was also an entrepreneur interested in securing patents on some pieces of the genome. Venter had developed a technique for gene sequencing that was considerably faster than the one being used by scientists working on the public project. And in 1998, he started a company called Solera Genomics to pursue genome sequencing as a private venture and try to beat the public scientists to the finish line. Craig was part of the public effort at the beginning and announced to us at one of our meetings that he was going to go do this and no longer be part of the public project. We thought this was horrifying uh, because, uh, we, you know, here we were using public money to make something public, and Craig was saying we, didn't, we need not do it. He even suggested to Congress that, that the public effort need not exist. Venter's plan generated fierce opposition from both scientists and the public. But eventually, he and the researchers at the Human Genome Project agreed to cooperate rather than compete. In June 2000, Venter and Francis Collins, who was then the head of the Human Genome Project, stood with President Bill Clinton in the East Room of the White House. They were there to announce that a working draft of the human genome had been completed ahead of schedule. It will revolutionize the diagnosis, prevention, and treatment of most, if not all, human diseases, the president proclaimed. And he was right. To be honest with you, even when I was involved with the Human Genome Project, I never envisioned that it would actually be medically used within my career, you know, maybe in the next generation or the generation beyond that. This is Dr. Eric Green. He's currently the head of the National Human Genome Research Institute. Trained as a pathologist, he got involved in the Human Genome Project because he could see how genetic sequencing might be used to improve diagnostic capabilities. But things have moved far more quickly than he ever thought possible. 20 years ago, it would have cost about a billion dollars to sequence a human genome. Today, it costs under a thousand. A human genome can also be sequenced in just hours, when it once took years. And the affordability and speed of sequencing is having an impact. 
Green cites the example of babies in neonatal intensive care units. Doctors were often unable to make an accurate diagnosis of what was making those babies so sick. But now they can. An investigator, actually somebody we were supporting through a grant, came up with a way to very rapidly use these new methods to sequence the DNA of these acutely ill neonates, doing it literally in 24 hours. And boy, you hear these stories of these neonates that were literally on death's door, and all of a sudden, in 24 hours, using genomics, you could figure out how to treat and save that child. Uh, that is truly compelling. Today, some researchers have shifted their focus away from using genetic sequencing to diagnose and treat disease. Instead, they're using it to try to predict disease. Dr. Amit Kara leads a research group at the Broad Institute Center for Genomic Medicine at MIT. Dr. Kara has developed a new way of predicting disease using what he calls a polygenic risk score. So a polygenic risk score is actually a new type of genetic risk factor that integrates information from many different sites where my DNA might differ from yours into a single number. And that number actually reflects our inherited susceptibility to a given disease. There are many, many variants across the genome, across all the chromosomes, that can impact your risk for important diseases, breast cancer, heart attack, diabetes, and so forth. All the diseases that Dr. Kara just mentioned involve mutations in many locations across a person's genome. This makes treating them and predicting who might be at risk particularly challenging. In one study, Dr. Kara compared people who had heart attacks to those who didn't. It turns out there are about six and a half million spots in our DNA where my DNA might differ from somebody else's. So as part of the study, we basically compared how common these variants were in someone who had a heart attack versus someone who didn't. If the variant was more common in the people who had a heart attack, that's a risk variant. So at the end of that study, we basically have a list of six and a half million variants and for each of them, an effect estimate. Does it increase your risk by 5%? Does it decrease your risk by 2%? And so forth. Kara likes to point out that genetics is not destiny. And in many cases, lifestyle changes can mitigate whatever genetic predisposition a person might have for heart disease or other serious illnesses. But without knowing you have a genetic predisposition, many people won't choose to make those lifestyle changes. Kara's work is still in its early stages and not yet publicly available. But one day, knowing your polygenic risk score might become as routine as knowing your blood type. A key advantage of the polygenic score is it can actually be calculated from the time of birth because it's based just on the DNA you inherited from your mother and your father. So for a heart attack, for example, if a 20-year-old comes into my office, we actually don't have any clinical risk estimator to say whether your risk is high or low because almost no 20-year-olds have been diagnosed with diabetes, hypertension, obesity, and so forth. So here's really a totally new tool that can be measured one time from the time of birth that really does predict very, very different lifetime trajectories of your risk for disease. Being able to predict the likelihood of a genetic disease is clearly important. But what if you were able to go one step further and actually repair or even eliminate the genetic mutation 
that was causing the disease. Over the past decade, researchers have made enormous progress in accomplishing that goal, thanks largely to a gene editing technique called clustered regularly interspaced short palindromic repeats. But you probably know it by its acronym, CRISPR. CRISPR is a bacterial immune system, and it's a system that has been harnessed for something called genome editing, which means changing DNA sequences precisely and accurately in cells. Berkeley biology professor Jennifer Doudna, who's the subject of my next book, is one of the world's leading CRISPR researchers. In fact, it was a breakthrough in her lab in 2012 that sparked the current wave of scientific excitement over CRISPR. Well, I was sitting in my my office at Berkeley and I was working on uh, probably my lecture for my uh, sophomore uh, biology class. And Martin Yinek, who was the scientist working in my lab on this project, came into the office and he said, Jennifer, uh, there's something really interesting going on with this Cas9 protein. And I said, well, what is it? And he said, well, you have to come to the lab and I, I want to show you some of the data that I have from my recent experiment. So Jennifer Doudna went to her lab to see what had gotten her colleagues so excited. It turned out that the Cas9 protein could actually be programmed to seek out and cut a segment of DNA with scalpel-like precision. And it would work in any living organism. All you had to do was find the mutation in the human genome responsible for a disease and just turn it off or cut it out. This was uh, just an incredibly exciting moment, as you can imagine, and we realized that we understood the molecular function of this protein, but we also looked at each other and said, you know, this is, this is really interesting, but it's also potentially an exciting technology because it could be used to trigger changes to the DNA in cells. Ever since Stanley Cohen and Herbert Boyer discovered recombinant DNA in the early 1970s, researchers around the world have been looking for ways to edit genes quickly and precisely. With CRISPR-Cas9, Jennifer Doudna's lab had found the key to make it work. You know, it's one of those things. You, you see a result like that, and uh, in my in my experience, you know, there's only a few times in one's career when there's a, something that happens in the lab that where you have a sense that it's a big deal. And this was certainly a moment like that. And so, you know, I sort of felt the hairs on my neck standing up and sort of realizing that, you know, this this really has profound implications. And uh, I think what's so interesting about about this technology is that unlike some other uh, technologies that are are very important in, in biology, this one really from the very beginning was clearly, you know, incredibly useful and, and was adopted very quickly by a number of labs that were able to deploy it in different types of cells and systems. This wasn't the first time that scientists had tried to cure disease by manipulating the genome. In the 1990s, researchers inserted viruses into patient cells in order to disrupt gene sequences or add new genetic information. The technique was called gene therapy. But those viruses were hard to control, and they didn't always do what they were supposed to do. Gene therapy lacked the precision offered by CRISPR-Cas9, 
which has already produced life-saving results. Victoria Gray is a 34-year-old woman from Mississippi who suffers from sickle cell disease. Sickle cell is a rare blood disorder that's difficult to treat. The disease is caused by a genetic mutation that produces a defective form of hemoglobin, which is a protein used by red blood cells to carry oxygen. In July 2019, doctors removed bone marrow cells from Gray's body, edited a gene inside them using CRISPR, and infused the modified cells back into her system. The hope was that the new cells would produce a protein that alleviated the worst complications of her disease. And it worked. Victoria Gray was the first person to have her disease treated using CRISPR gene editing. And one year later, the cells are functioning as planned, and she is pain-free. I'm incredibly humbled and honored to be part of the science that, that contributed to that. I mean, I think it's extraordinary. You know, any, I think any scientist would say that, you know, we all hope that our work will have an impact um, on humanity in some, you know, even a small way that will help cure people of disease or, or solve real world problems. There's no question that treating disease with gene editing has enormous potential, but much work still needs to be done. Jennifer Doudna estimates that Victoria Gray's treatment probably costs a couple of million dollars, so it will be years before it can be of any help to the roughly 100,000 Americans suffering from sickle cell disease. And CRISPR is currently most effective with diseases caused by a mutation in a single gene. Most diseases are caused by mutations in hundreds or thousands of genes. And there have been serious ethical questions raised about the use of gene editing. There's widespread agreement in the scientific community that, for now, it should be done only on fully developed cells. Until it is proven safe and medically necessary, it should not be used on cells found in embryos, sperm, or eggs, where the edited genes can be passed along to future generations. Editing these so-called germline cells raises the specter of researchers playing God by creating designer babies. In 2018, a Chinese doctor did just that. He announced that he had used CRISPR to edit the genes of two human embryos. Scientists around the world condemned the experiment, and the Chinese government sentenced the doctor to three years in prison. But CRISPR is a relatively easy technology to master, and no one can be sure that similar experiments aren't happening in labs somewhere else in the world. Forty-five years ago, scientists met at Asilomar to discuss recombinant DNA, that groundbreaking new technology with profound ethical implications. Jennifer Doudna thinks we may now be at a similar moment with CRISPR. You know, we're living at an extraordinary time when science and technology is, seems to be moving faster and faster. And that certainly means that there's a tendency for the developments of, of technology to outpace 
the regulation of those technologies. And that's certainly true for CRISPR, I would say. And so, you know, how do we deal with that? I think that I've struggled with this and I think, I think many scientists do. I think it's very important for scientists to be, first of all, engaged in, in those discussions, not throwing it over the fence for somebody else to worry about, but, you know, really themselves thinking about how the work that we do and technologies that come out of our work are, are being utilized. We are learning how to decode and rewrite the human instruction manual. We are disrupting the very essence of what it is to be human. And when technology is disrupting the very building blocks of life, we have a responsibility to make sure that it's done right. I'm Walter Isaacson, and you've been listening to Trailblazers, an original podcast from Dell Technologies. For more information about any of the guests on today's show, please visit DellTechnologies.com slash Trailblazers. Thanks for listening.